Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show from the Workmen's Club in Dublin. We're live from this well-known music venue as the country's night economy fully reopens after nearly 600 days. We're asking the, the, the owners, the event organisers, the, the public to cooperate here so that we can keep these uh, events open. Well, I've been going out a nice bit anyway, you know what I mean, to call this spade a spade, but like, I suppose you have a bit more crack, like a bit more kind of options and stuff like that. Like. And will you keep uh, your mask on you when you're out? No, I won't. Can't even keep it on me when I'm in a shop and pull it down over my face. And I'm here in studio taking a look at the very latest news and all the other big stories of the week. Get in touch on Twitter. Our hashtag is TonightVMTV. Good evening and welcome to The Tonight Show. We'll be going live to Clare Brock in the Workmen's Club in central Dublin in just a few minutes' time. But first, I'm joined by our news correspondent, Zara King, and by the Irish Examiner's political editor, Daniel McConnell, for the very latest on the reopening plans for the night economy and the guidelines issued tonight. And I'll start with yourself, Daniel. You might just talk us through exactly how all of this is supposed to work from two hours' time. Yeah, so it's a bit chaotic because the guidelines have literally only just been agreed. Um, there was, a, a, I suppose, a... A demand from the sector to kind of get these out much earlier than they did, but obviously they've they've only been announced. So ultimately, it means that like nightclubs and other late night venues will be able to open from tonight, i.e. tomorrow. There will be uh, restrictions in relation to you know the numbers that that can go in. Ultimately, however, and there will also be some mechanism by way people can actually order drink at the bar, but you'll have to. You can order at the bar, but you have to go take your drink to a table if there's one permissible. If it's a okay. nightclub, however, and there's not enough tables. That rule does so, not apply. But this, this is a queue for a bar which is socially distanced, even yeah. though you might be buying a drink for someone that you're going to be cheek by jowl with on the dance floor in a few minutes afterwards. Listen, all of this looks very chaotic. All of this looks... Because I, I think we were making the point off air, these are guidelines, these are not regulations. So ultimately, how enforceable are all of these going to be? And ultimately, you know, we have pleadings from various ministers and the Taoiseach in Brussels today saying, we urge the public or we ask the public and we plead with the public to try and do their bit to make sure that the sector can stay open. That's fine at in the middle of the day, how's that going to be at one o'clock, two o'clock in the morning? Uh, that's, <laughs> that's a question we could spend the whole evening debating, I suspect. Uh, Zara King, our news correspondent, is with us as well. Zara, you were uh, keeping an eye on the HSE's figures this afternoon. They were outlining exactly where we are in the health situation. Yeah, I suppose, Gavin, look, the reality is protecting the health service is kind of the priority at the moment as those case numbers continue to rise. So 448 in hospital this evening, with which 88 are in the intensive care unit. Um, the HSE gave a weekly update uh, press conference this week, their first one in a long time, where they're talking about uh, the situation. Paul Reid saying that, look, things are going to get worse before they get better. Um, he doesn't think, however, 
though, that we're going to get to the stage that we were at back in January or February, 2,000 hospitalizations. It's not going to be like that. Obviously, we have 90% vaccination, but he does acknowledge uh, that it's going to be hectic. He says it's going to be probably like this right up to the end of November, which he hopes will be the peak, and then we'll see things uh, potentially dropping off after that. And what will the effects be on the health service if you do only have a peak, which is about a month away from where we are now, and we're about to reopen the one environment that everyone said was the most dangerous? Well, I think the reality is that, like, you know, we're going to see things being cancelled. That's the reality. If the hospitals are filling up, the beds are filling up, elective surgeries, other procedures being cancelled already, hearing anecdotally from frontline workers who are sending private messages to us directly as reporters, uh, telling us that there's been cancellations and things uh, at different hospitals up and down the country. So they are already dealing with a lot of pressure within the system. Um, for example, in some places, you've got health staff, frontline workers who are out of work. There's 1,800, I think Paul Reid said today, 1,800 staff that are currently out on COVID leave at the moment as it is. So uh, it's inevitable that it's going to take a hit. Daniel, it all sounds very much like this time last year when we were looking down the barrel at a second full national lockdown, doesn't it? Yeah, and the point being made to me by several men members of Cabinet today was that if we were at this point last year without vaccinations, we would be going into another lockdown. However, I suppose we have to see the benefit of this that very extraordinary rate of vaccination mm. and also as well you know given that everything that the public and the people have been through and the, and the i suppose the, everything that we've you know had to suffer through we need to see some benefit of all that and i think ultimately that's why there's such a political resistance to going anywhere near any sort of lockdown again. Um, Zara, we did get the blessing from the Taoiseach a few days ago to go trick-or-treating in a couple of days' time, but already there's warnings from a senior member of Neffet about needing to hold our guard when it comes to Christmas. Well, I, it, not just Christmas, Gavin, I suppose, just in terms of socialisation, Killian de Gascoigne just saying to us today that, look, people need to really start realising and checking who they're socialising with and the settings they're socialising in. So, for example, they're saying, look, if you have an unvaccinated friend within your friend group, really inviting them to an indoor dinner party probably isn't the most wise thing at the moment. If they're not going to get a COVID cert to go indoors to a restaurant or a pub really they shouldn't be coming indoors into your home so they're difficult conversations to have with your own vaccinated friends but I suppose the point that Killian Degaskin is making is you've got to really meet them in an outdoor setting throughout the winter. Zara, Daniel thank you very much for now that is the lay of the land Claire that is exactly the regulations as they've been published but let's see exactly how they're going to work with those in the industries let's go back to the Workman's Club and Claire and her panel. Thanks for that, Gavin. Well, we are live, as you say, at the Workmen's Club in central Dublin, where the live events and entertainment industry have been reacting to those new guidelines, which will come into force at midnight. I'm joined by venue owner Vinnie Casey, virologist Gerald Barry and hot press journalist Stuart Clark. We did invite the Arts and Culture Minister Catherine Martin to join us, but she was not available. Um, you're all very welcome along tonight. It's, it's good news that you are finally reopening, I'd say, Vinny. What do you make of the guidelines as they've been presented to you? Um, well, as it stands, I mean, it was very last minute, but we are, I mean, we're happy. There's a great sense of relief and we're just really, really looking forward to getting the place open, getting our venues open, getting people in to watch live music again. So it's, it, it was last minute, but it was, it was what we needed. Yes, yeah, so the announcement came about reopening on Tuesday, mm -hmm. but the guidelines were lagging. Yes. So we only really got an announcement around that tonight. Do you think the message is clear? Are you clear about what you can do, what you can't do um, when it comes to reopening safely for your patrons? Up until a few hours ago, I would have said absolutely not. Um, it is looking a bit more clear now. It's, it's, um, you know, it's what we wanted. We, can, we, we have been putting plans in place for safe re reopening for weeks and months. Um, this is what we do. We organise events and we can work around any safety protocols or anything that, that, that's needed. Um, so we're, we're, we're happy with, with how it's rolled out, it just in the very last minute fashion that it came out. 
Are you busy with gigs ahead now? Have they all been confirmed? Were people waiting to hear about these guidelines in order to see whether they, they were, could, yes. My, they could I mean, I've been getting con here. people contacting me constantly seeing if the shows were, were going to be going ahead. And I didn't have answers for them. Um, we unfortunately did lose a few a few shows because um, there's obviously a huge amount of organising that goes in, goes into uh, putting on a live show. You know, um, tour buses, vans have to be booked, uh, musicians have to come from all over the place. So I mean, we have lost a few shows, which is you know heartbreaking to to think that they actually could have gone ahead now. But at least you know we're we're not for looking back, we're for looking forward, and uh, and uh, we, we can't wait to get back open tomorrow night. Stuart, if any, sounding quite optimistic and positive yeah. about what's happening after 19 months in free fall, the industry really needs this to happen now and, and it, for, for all of it to go well. What, what do you think about the way it's played out over the last few days and where it's left well, the, um, the sector? The has been appalling, uh, has been all along, to be honest. Though I have to say, in fairness to Catherine Martin, when she became minister, she, she got it. At first, it was like you spent 25 years working as a, a tour manager. You can be a gardener. And it was insulting. She came in and she looked at it differently. The Green Party wanted a, a basic income for, for artists. The nighttime economy is a big thing. Licensing, these are all areas. And it hasn't sunk in with me yet. There is trepidation that we go back in a couple of months to where we've been. I think venues here are very responsible. We're some of the best promoters in the world and they want to do it right. They want a chance to do it right and they will do it right. But you know, it could be snatched away, hopefully not. But I think what we need to do going forward is to respect this industry a lot more. For one thing, the money it generates, 700 million euro a year, 11,000 people directly employed. Government haven't always recognized that. We have a minister now that does. So let's have this and then joined up thinking, a concerted plan to really celebrate and treat this industry properly. Of course, um, Gerald, all of this is against the backdrop of those case numbers um, that we're seeing about the NEFET briefing that we had for the first time since August yesterday, warning us to be cautious around this, even though the reopening is getting the go ahead. What does the science community think about this decision to, to go ahead with reopening clubs and pubs um, and to make those amendments that were, I think, very important for the sector as well? Yeah, I think across community, there's probably a lot of mixed emotions I would say. Um, personally I feel a real sense of optimism about the fact that things are really I suppose opening and beginning to get back to a little bit of normality. I think it's brilliant that venues like this can get back open. I think it's been an absolute disaster that they haven't been allowed to open up to this point. But at the same time that's really tinged with caution um, and large caveats. I think the direction we're going in now over the last few weeks and, and will probably go on for the next few months at least um, is worrying. Um, I don't think venues like this are going to change anything that dramatically uh, so it's right that they're opening but I think uh, as a society generally we need to be a little bit concerned about the direction we're going in. Um, I think it was unfortunate yesterday personally um, that uh, the public in essence were blamed for where we are now and, and the finger was very much pointed at the public to change behaviour to try and turn this thing around. Um, and, you know, I, I'm a virologist, I look at what viruses do, I look at how this virus is infecting people, is evolving to live and infect us, and I just don't really get a feeling that our public health, our, our, our policies, our government are evolving in the same way to allow us to live 
with this virus because we're doing the same thing. It felt really like a Groundhog Day yesterday, that NEFA press conference. It was the same thing we've been hearing for an awful long time. And I just, I would like it to change and evolve and get better. Yeah, what do you think about that idea? The message has been very much, um, this, is, this is on us now. This is our responsibility to do the right thing. Now, a lot of people coming into this venue will want to do that. But do you think there needs to be, for example, you've got COVID certs. That's a big job for you to manage at the door. Um, it'll be coupled with ID. You'll need to cross-check those certs, QR codes, all of that. That requires manpower um, adherence. Are you going to find that tough and challenging? Would you like a bit more support, a bit more help? Well, I mean, the, we, we have, since we've been open with, with uh, BioService, we've been checking COVID certs and, you know, we're getting, we're getting good at it. And, you know, it's, it's, for us, it's just, it's just another thing we have to do in order to get the stages open. Um, if we have to do it, we'll do it. We can check IDs, check COVID certs, check tickets. Um, it takes a lot, of, a lot of extra bodies to get it done. Um, you have to make sure that people are prepped on the way up to the door um, so that they're not kind of fumbling with their phones and stuff like that. But we're happy to do all that stuff um, as, as long as we're allowed to just, just be given a chance have to do it. Have you met with many people challenging that um, it's been, policy at the Honestly, door? it's been so good. People have been amazing. Um, we, we've had very, very few instances where people, where people have... have have had any issue. Stuart, bigger gigs, bigger venues, you know, it's obviously really big now in the run-up to Christmas. They're going to try and claw back all they can from the last months. Um, do you think that the, the strategy that everyone must be vaccinated and that you must present those COVID certs, that that's going to come with any new challenges? Well, they had the pilot events in June. Three and a half thousand people in Kilmainham went extremely well. Outdoor, of course, but in a way that's harder to manage. They had antigen testing as well. If you weren't vaccinated, it went very, very smoothly, and there was no, um, it was no super spreader event. There was no sort of increase in, in cases linked to it afterwards. So we've we've got a bit of uh, data to look at. We've got There's best small pilot gigs, weren't they? They've yeah, but we have best practice from around. all around Europe as well because they're a month or two ahead. There is a huge pent up demand. And I must say, well done to the artists who, rather than just go, we're going to hibernate, can I use the sort of bizarre situation in, in a positive way? Artists emerged during COVID, like CMAT and Denise Chyla. They went, OK, this is what we've got. This is the, the hand we've been dealt. And they got on with it. And there are loads of artists, as well as old favourites. There's new bands we want to see. But there will be some gigs that might make financial sense. Like in the three arena, often it's 95% of the tickets pay for the, the, the band, and the 5% is the profit. So not all shows will go ahead, but just to have the grassroots in particular back, like the Workmans, is it, just marvellous. Yeah. Because musicians have struggled. 90% of income is now from live. And if you're a roadie, 100%. Yeah, and um, I suppose when people, you know, it's actually getting used to the idea, really, Gerald, of this, uh, and we hate to use the phrase because it's been so overused, but the new normal, and for people to accept, you say, that this is the way it's going to be now. If you want to go out and you want to enjoy your life, th this is the way we're going to do it in a, in a somewhat moderated way. Yeah, I mean, you often hear about how this virus is going to become endemic in the country. And, and we need to realise that endemic doesn't mean it's going to become like the common fl or flu or, or the common cold where we'll get a bit of a sniffle and get over it and can basically ignore it. Endemic means we're going to live with this thing. And every winter, it's likely we're going to see a cycle of this virus spreading through the population if we don't have the correct measures in place. So that is, in, in a way, a horrible phrase, but it is a new normal because... Um, 
the life we had back in 2019 is never going to look the same as it is now for the foreseeable future, which is a terrible thing to yeah. think about. You but know, actually, I think that's really worrying for people. Yeah, but I think the penny needs to drop in, in, in the offices of people that are implementing policy in the country. And they need to realize that what we did in 2019 is not going to work now. And what we need to do is implement proper public health policies that will actually allow us to live as close to normal as possible, mm -hmm. while in the background we have a huge amount of work going on controlling the virus, rather than impinging restrictions on society when all people are trying to do, in effect, is live a normal life and socialise like we have to do. So let's talk, talk about, about some of those regulations because one of the rules and the controversial one was around serving at the bar. So the decision has been made that you can serve at the bar but you can't drink at the bar and um, you need to queue in an orderly manner with the social distancing in place. Like, How would that affect smaller venues, say, and, and areas of this particular venue uh, where you may have the bar that's pretty much on the dance floor? Well, I mean, the, the, as you say, the guidelines just came out, so we haven't even talked through this yet. Um, but I, I see it's doable. Um, you know, we, we, we can police people in order to make sure that they stay in, in different lines at the bar. Um, I, I think, I think it's, it's, it's definitely something that you'll have to sit down and work out with, with the bar staff, how they're going to do it and, and what kind of system is going to be in place. But it's definitely, we can, we can do it. Yeah, and when Gerald says we need to get used to this, that we're, we perhaps maybe we'll see this every year, it'll yeah. be a cyclical thing. What do you think when you hear that? I am just thinking about next week. <laughs> no, <laughs> I get it. Fair um, but yeah, it, it is frightening. Um, but it, it, we have to, you know, we have to, yeah, like like Gerald said, the penny has to drop, and we have to, you know, as as, as the governmental level, it has to be managed and and made livable for people. Yeah. Would you like to see a bit more support around, say, the issue of ventilation and all those really those really important mitigation measures Absolutely. that can stop the spread? Yeah. I mean, because at the end of the day, I have I've you know very little idea about how viral ventilation should work. So if, if, if that is a thing that could come and, you know, we, we could be, you know, proper ventilation systems brought into venues and stuff like that would be absolutely fantastic. Um, just about those uh, capacity, the numbers you can have sitting and standing. Stuart, as far as you're aware, when you can have a max of 1,500 standing, but yeah. you, can, you can fill out to capacity, what will that mean, uh, depending on venue sizes, in terms of the numbers that they can get Depends into? Depends on the venue. Some of the three arena has different configurations. I, I'm imagining they'll get a decent chunk of that 14,000 in. But again, I think they won't know till they read the small print, and I certainly don't know the exact numbers. But um, promoters have been spending, they had a lot of time on their hands, and they've been looking at every scenario. I know terms of the major um, promoters, they've been really studying best practice abroad. And there has been four or five months of that to look at to see what is working. Yeah, and in terms, I suppose, because look, those promoters would have been lobbying government. Do you think they're going to be happy with what's been presented tonight? Well, I actually think that lobbying paid off. I think something happened overnight politically. I, having interviewed the minister quite recently, I think it was her. I think she has been the one really beating the drum for the industry. She gets it. I think there was some serious talking last night because 24 hours ago, this wasn't going to happen. And the industry has been as one. It's really sort of come together and spoken with very articulate fashion, with facts and science. You know, they've been presenting scientific evidence, which has been often ignored. And I think I think it was some of the contradictions also in place there, Gerald. That you, if you were if you were uh, performing a gig, that everyone had to be seated 
but that nightclubs, you know, were open for all. And this really confused people. Could you see from a scientific point of view where they were coming from there? No, no I can't. And um, I mean, ultimately, that's the problem it, it, to an extent around messaging. You know, we've been dealing with this thing now for, what, 19, 20 months at this stage. Communication has to be better. It has to be planned. It has to be discussed with the people that are involved in these kind of industries well in advance of any decision to open up so that everything is set out and everyone is clear. When you push go, everyone knows what to do. Yeah. Instead of scrambling around in advance and, and, and worrying about you know, details that are important for the industry, but in the grand scheme of controlling this virus, whether you're standing or sitting, uh, is almost irrelevant. It's on the grand scheme of the population of the country dealing with this virus across the country. Little details like that are not going to make or break whether we end up in a lockdown or not. And, and, and focus on that, uh, you know, by media or by politicians or whoever is talking about this is really not what we should be focusing on. Just um, because there's much talk about the booster jab for the on over 60s. Mm -hmm. Will this uh, make any difference at all in the younger population who are going to be heading to all the pubs and clubs? If we boost the over if 60s? If we boost the over 60s. I think when you, when you get a booster it's very clear that your immunity shoots back up again so it will protect those over 60s or give them a, a massive boost of protection against infection. So I suppose in a way what that will do is it will reduce infection in that population of people and hopefully that will lead to a general reduction of infection across the country. But of course, essentially what it'll do is it'll just shift the virus into the younger population. So in a way, it might give them a, a little bit of um, confidence that maybe they're not going to bring it back to potentially vulnerable people that they're living with or, or maybe visiting. But in the grand scheme of things, it needs to be probably a broader scale thing and much more education around things like, I mean, we talked about ventilation there, that, you know, 20 months in, uh, not to know how ventilation works and how it can help, that's a real problem of communication from above to the industry. Okay, well, I want to wish you the very best of luck in the coming days and weeks and the run-up to Christmas and, and beyond. Um, thanks to all my panel, to Gerald and to Stuart too. Uh, that's it for now, but after the break, we'll have more reaction to the big reopening. So stay with us. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG.
to the Workmen's Club in Dublin, where I'm joined now by Andrea Horan, co-presenter of the United Ireland podcast, Sarah Corcoran, vocalist with the Pillow Queens, and psychotherapist Richard Hogan. You're all very welcome along tonight. Uh, Sarah, I want to start with you because these guidelines that have been issued tonight in the reopening is a really big deal for you because a lot hinges on it, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you have gigs lined up. Mm -hmm. So how, how's it all going to play out? How prepared are you for, for what's going to happen in the next few weeks? To be honest, I haven't given my, myself a chance to get in any way excited because we've had so many setbacks as an industry. Um, but I think tonight's guidelines have looked pretty positive. So we, for example, have a sold out tour for the winter. Had there been any capacity restrictions on that, we wouldn't have been able to go ahead with them. Um, we're playing on this very stage next week. Same thing applies. Had there been any capacity restrictions, we couldn't have gone ahead. So we were really sitting by our computers waiting for any sort of update this evening. Um, I mean, it took until after close of business tonight to know. So it, it's been pretty tough. Um, How stressful was that? Incredibly stressful. Like it is our livelihood um, as artists and I think promoters as well, as kind of Vinnie mentioned already. But it's it's huge for us we've obviously everyone has had to put their head down for the last whatever it's been 19 months or so but we've had to really put the industry on pause entirely there's no way to work from home as a musician um, as an artist my entire identity is wrapped up in yeah. performing and performing to an audience and there's been no option to do that so it literally took until tonight at, at six o'clock a text from my sister came in to say congrats Sarah you're going to be on stage again that's brilliant but yeah, it's been a tough... Did that make you emotional, one. getting that text? Yeah, I mean, I was elated. I was pretty emotional when the initial guidelines came in that where there was talk of um, capacity restrictions and that kind of thing. And I thought, OK, it's going to be spring uh, next year by the time I'm on stage again. And I was kind of walking the streets of Dublin, refreshing my Twitter feed, just hoping for good news. And that didn't come through because the messaging was incredibly mixed. And I think artists weren't the priority at all. That was pretty disappointing. You know, something you said there about your identity being very wrapped up in this um, and your identity as a musician being defined by your ability to perform. Mm -hmm. So when you didn't have that, yeah. that must have really been a very uneasy time for you personally and yeah. for many others who are all in the same boat. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm speaking from a personal perspective, but we're only a relatively new band comparatively but we've been a band for just under five years and two of those have been under lockdown so I got to a point in my career as an artist where I finally felt comfortable to say to people I'm a musician and then everything shut down and I kind of had to backtrack it a little bit and say well maybe I'm not and you know okay my day job is admin because it had to be when things shut down so is that what I say to people now or can I still claim the artist identity so that was pretty tough. Yeah I just listening there to what Sarah had to say it's a really, you know, when, when your whole identity is very much wrapped up in your ability to do this job and then you can't do it and it's taken away from you, it's very difficult, isn't it? Oh, it absolutely is, Claire. And I, and I hear uh, Sarah's story and we were talking about it beforehand, before we came on, and she was saying that she's working admin at the moment. And that's a story that I've heard so much in my clinic of young artists who have come in and have had to kind of really adapt to survive and I think their stories are missing in the media that you know the idea that you are an artist and you are a performer and you write music and you you want to get out there and perform that music but because of what's happened here because of the restrictions you have to shape shift a little bit to survive and that's what we're hearing in that story and it's really commendable to everybody who survived over the last 19 months.
Yeah, so then it, it's getting through that, isn't mm. it? And it's actually rediscovering to, yeah. yourself. It's getting through that storm of what we've been through, and now we're here, thank God, the, the, the message is positive, and now they're going to be able to express themselves again. And uh, Andrea, for those in the, who, in the grand scheme of things, would say, you know, clubbing this last phase essentially to reopen, is it really that important to people? You think, as somebody who very much would enjoy going out and enjoy the nightlife and the night economy, would say, yeah, it, it is important, is it? I bring everything back when this question comes up to what is the meaning of life? And when you break down the philosophy of life, of what we're here to do, are we here to grind all the time or are we here to have a good time, pleasure and socialise, have connections? Yes, we are. And I think we are hung up in this stigma and shame of being able to admit that we enjoy pleasure and that we value it and that we like it's part of our society. And we are so focused on creating an economy rather than a society where everyone's needs are attended to. And like I suppose I come from a, a position where I have no children. I don't have anything to that I have to do where part of what my life is, is clubbing. So why should I have to erase my life to make way for other parts of society to take more importance over that when that's the most important part to me? Yeah, and in terms of making the connection, like we're talking about the dance floor, what mm. do people do now when you're dancing no masks and, and everything else, what goes on in nightclubs, as the Taoiseach said. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Andrea, you're laughing. You know exactly what goes on. <laughs> so, uh, you know, but, but that is important, isn't it? Making that connection on the dance floor, even. So much happens on the dance floor that, like, we talk about connections as if they're this frivolous thing. But so much happens on a dance floor in terms of, like, uh, music, fashion, creativity, um, jobs that become, that you meet on a dance floor and then go on to create. I've, like, met so many theatre producers who met their cast on the dance floor. Um, creative partnerships happen. And I, not just creative stuff, but actual business. I've hired, when I used to work in Peoria, loads of staff that I met in clubs. Um, so much happens on the dance floor and also you have a good time and I, I hate to like keep pushing that to the back but that it there's nothing wrong with admitting that having a good time is important you know on the subject of having a good mm. time are you worried a bit Sarah about people being a bit hesitant to go back gigging to go back um, to come and see you play yeah are, are you worried that people who you know would have loved to see what's in the new album mm -hmm. now will say you know I'm just not comfortable doing it I mean I can understand if they were um, but I think we've demonstrated as an industry that we will literally do anything to get the industry back on its feet. So I don't think any venue that's worth its salt is going to go against any restrictions. I think it's going to be a safe reopening. I don't think there's anything to really worry about because as an industry, we have so much to lose. As individuals, we've so much to lose. I don't think anyone wants to take risks at this stage. So I, I envision it's going to be a safe space for people. So that's my hope for it anyway. You had a pretty busy lockdown, mm. didn't you? Because, yeah. you know, when, when you obviously had to turn maybe to other work, but mm -hmm. you, you, were, you did release an album last we year. We did. So we had the album kind of ready to go when, when this whole thing started. Um, and we could either sit in it for an unknown amount of time or we could release it. So we decided to set up our own record label. We released the album and um, it went down a storm. It was great. We did US television. We were on the James Corden show. We did incredible things. We're really proud of what we've achieved, but there's been no opportunity to kind of showcase that. We don't know what size our audience is going to be when we get back to it. The gigs that we're playing in the winter have been sold out for over a year now. So we, we don't even know the scale at which the, the band has grown. We've, we've no way to evaluate that. So that's really interesting. Are you a little nervous? 
Now I'm excited. <laughs> well, that's <laughs> a great place to be. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and well, you should be. Uh, Richard, the, the, we were talking just that mm. uncertainty and mm. the idea that while many people will be happening, happy that this is all happening, there are others who might be a little triggered, a little anxious mm. by seeing, you know, reopening and and the change that, mm. that, that goes with all of that after such a long time of closure. Um, what would you say in terms of getting people used to the fact that this is now um, upon us? You know what, Claire, we need to just get back out there. We need to start living our lives again. We need to start kind of, you know, going forth boldly into the, into this new world because if, you know, habits form so quickly, and like what you're saying, connection is a part, like we're mammals, we are hardwired to connect to each other. That's just fundamentally in our DNA to connect to each other. The dance floor, all that kind of stuff. I met my wife on the dance floor, I got three beautiful girls. Because of the dance floor, I've got some serious moves, Claire. And, <laughs> you know, and the dance floor brought that forth. So we have to, if you're, if you're, you know, if you're nervous, you're, you know, you're anticipating this thing, you just got to go back in there, trust the science. You heard Gerald, there's no difference between sitting down here, going to a night for a standing up. There's no difference going to a restaurant. We just got to trust the science, get back out there again and start living our lives. I'm just wondering about that caution, that caution that's always in mm. the background. Um, you know, Neffet were supposed mm. to be wound up. They're very much back on the scene again. And daily now we're hearing about those COVID numbers again and how much that plays into mm. our psyche. Oh, it does, of course. I mean, we're, we're, we're always looking for threat. You know, our, our, our brain is constantly looking around us to see if our environment is safe or uns, unsure. And, you know, nothing has, nothing has corroded our sense of concrete norms like the last 19 months. So a lot of things collapse. So we're constantly in this heightened sense of threat. Well, we also have to now kind of say, well, this is, as you said yourself, this is new life. This is the way we have to live. Let's just get out there. Let's start living again. Let's, I mean, really, we have to start embracing this next, this next phase. So this is a very positive thing. And also think about when you were a young adult, your whole world is about meeting people, meeting new people, getting out, communicating, setting, meeting poten your potential partner. You got to take that step now. You got to go to the college bar. You got to get out there. And, I and really want to go out now. I, I know. really do. And we'll stay out tonight now. And start to celebrate your <laughs> Yeah, no, it's good, and it, and and uh, it's just it's about a new way of thinking, it isn't is, it? Yeah, yeah and, and an important thing, Andrea, as a, as a as a businesswoman, mm -hmm. is probably getting that footfall back in the city centre. How and look in centres right across and towns right across the country. Um, how important do you think it is to? I know you don't like to use the word economy when you talk about going out, but look, it it is it is the night economy, and and it will uh, by opening doors it will mean you know more money, more footfall. It's a good thing. I am really excited for the nighttime economy. I, like, obviously, we live in an economy, that's fine. Um, fine, I'll admit to it. But after all the work that's been done on the nighttime economy task force and the studies that have been done and how important it is, and that it does fuel a city, and that we have been so reticent to actually open up the nighttime. So, with our opening hours, our licensing laws, all that kind of jazz, that we could have a city that was alive 24 hours a day. The, um, for all the fetishists of uh, making money, that would keep our city buzzing. But we'd also have a safer city because there'd be people around. We'd have transport links that would have to feed into that. We'd have a city that was um, was buzzing. And I think we all want that. And I think it, for businesses, even during the day then, like I have a nail bar, people are going to get their nails done more if they're going out. Um, so the, it kind of has such a cyclical effect. And I think our city has been really hammered over this, uh, and all our cities, but for me, obviously, it's Dublin, 
um, over the pandemic and we've seen the erasure of so much businesses, cultural spaces, um, amenities. We've an amenities crisis in Dublin. So we need yeah. to start, I suppose, moving into a space where we can have this economy kicking off, people in the city and safe feelings. And if anything, Sarah, uh, this pandemic has shown us how big the art sector plays a role in our lives because there was a huge gap there when, when we didn't have it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we did some live streams and that kind of thing and it really did fill a, a hole that we were missing um, not having the arts and nightlife in our lives. So, yeah, I mean, I'm really looking forward to things opening up again. Um, even from, from a safety perspective that Andrea said, like I live in town and walking home from even in the evening time after work is like, it feels dangerous. And now, you know, when things open up and there's more people around, there's just a safety that hasn't been around. So yeah, I think overall it's gonna have a great impact on the city. Just going back to what you were saying, you were talking about the album release and performing for James Corden. Mm. Um, you did that all remotely. Yeah, we did that in a studio in Summerhill because there was no way. We would have gone to LA. We had an invite, but it wasn't safe to do so. Oh, so how frustrating was that? I mean, it was good to do your first time on US TV from a studio outside your back door because <laughs> less nerves, but um, uh, there's an open invite when we go back. Um, but just on the bigger question of just, um, you know, getting those gigs, getting out and about again mm -hmm. and accepting those invites when they come, um, are, you, are you hopeful of just um, being able to kind of build yourself back up again and recoup on all the losses because we were talking about it earlier that there's big there's been big financial implications for the industry as well hasn't yeah it? absolutely i think everyone has suffered um i'm really happy that basic income was announced in the budget um, i think it's going to be incredible for artists going forward that they they have the support of the government um but yeah i think with with reopenings it's gonna it's gonna be amazing we're making plans we're making big plans for next year in the hopes that things are going to be back to a new sense of normal and we can travel again so we're making big plans okay best of luck with it thanks to you all thanks sarah and and richard and andrea for joining us tonight and that is is it from us from the workmen's club uh, thanks as i say to all our guests and to the venue for hosting us and coming up next gavin is back in studio he'll be taking a look at the big stories this week Welcome back to The Tonight Show. Let's take a look at the main stories of the week. With me still is the Irish Examiner's political editor, Daniel McConnell. Also now joined in studio by broadcaster and writer Barbara Scully and by Irish Times journalist uh, Jack Power. Uh, thank you all for joining me in studio. Um, Barbara, just interested to get your take, first of all, on, on the reopening of nightlife, because it genuinely seems that we're at a crossroads, that everyone says hospitals are full and no one really wants to do anything that contributes to the workload because we're hearing all the time about how many health staff are missing. And yet there's this side of just cultural yearning for people to get back to having a bit of crack in the ways that they previously knew how. And it's a very difficult thing to sort of juggle, really, isn't it? Yeah, but I think even more... I mean, I live with, with two adult daughters who, believe me, are chomping at the bit and were very stressed for the last few days because they bought tickets for things and where are they going to go ahead or where are they not going to go ahead and all the rest of it. So they're very happy with the state of affairs. Um, I think more than kind of the trying to balance the whole kind of reopening of nightclubs with the fact that the numbers are going up and hospitals are under pressure, I think what a lot of people are in there, me included, are wondering... We've had a couple of weeks where we basked in the glory of our amazing vaccination record and the fact that we were the best in Europe and we were clapping ourselves we on the back. We thought the nightclubs would be open in an hour and a half. Exactly. And I think a lot of people are now going, 
how come we, we've done all that and we're the best in the class at that and yet you know we're, we're our health services is seemingly again going to come under a lot of pressure in the next couple oh. of weeks uh, but i guess again it's down to to the number of people who haven't yet got a vaccination um, but I do I support the reopening of, of, of uh, live entertainment yeah. and of nightclubs and of, of, of the other uh, industries that will open uh, tomorrow because I do think that we have to kind of get on with it. Keep, keeping to, as Paul Reid said today, back to the basics of, you know, hand washing masks when you're moving around and trying to... So, although you can't really social distance, I believe, in a nightclub. Well, this is, this is one of the questions, really, Jack, <laughs> isn't it? Because the, the government is trying to argue that it's possible to open a nightclub in what is considered to be a safe way, but they're still arguing that the person that you're buying a drink for on the dance floor, you can stand beside them when you're having the drink, but if you're going to order it, you're supposed to be a couple of metres away. Or the idea even that it's tenable to socially distance at a, at a bar in a nightclub anyway. Yeah, and I think this is one of the things as well that the, the sector itself has been kind of complaining about anomalies over, you know, what, what's the difference between a nightclub or a pub that kind of turns into a bit of a club at, at one stage or has a, a dance floor in kind of one corner. So that's mm. been something that's kind of been trashed out and the, the guidelines have been changing nearly by the, the half hour um, in terms of what exactly is going to be allowed. And then I think, I suppose, we'll, we'll kind of all just see how on earth it kind of works tomorrow and, and what it looks like. Yeah, the brand new legal order kicking in in less than an hour and a half and at this point we still don't have, haven't seen the legal regulations which underpin all of the guidelines and as we were reminded and as Danny was remarking earlier on, Mary and Gate reminded us that guidelines are only guidelines, they're not legally binding. Uh, let's talk about one of the other uh, big issues of this week which is a story which has been rumbling on uh, for weeks, Danny, but finally today we had that ecumenical service in Armagh and everyone was wondering whether, you know, who would attend or whether it was appropriate to attend. It all seems to have gone off fairly under the radar today. It did and that kind of probably raises questions as to whether the decision by Michael D. Higgins not to attend was the right one. I think the point The was fact that it was so low profile? No, I would think the fact that, you know, if this was 10 years ago and it had Mary McAleese gone to that service, there no one would, I think, have batted an eyelid at it. I think the fact that Michael, me, Michael D. kind of hoisted himself on his own petard and said, you know, he raised a political point and then he opened himself essentially to political charges, mm. whereas I think had he gone as the head of, st of this state, recognising the, the, the struggle that we've all been through as a, as a country over the last 100 years and the separation of this island over the last 100 years, I don't think anybody really would have made too much of a fuss about it because I think it would have been in the spirit of you know mm. conciliation and all the rest of it. Um, and I think the fact that government was present today um, shows that... Through Simon Coveney and Jack Chambers. Yeah, that the world, you know, the sky didn't fall in. You know, you can respect, respectfully disagree in terms of the impact that the separation of our country has had. Um, I don't think it was a triumphalist, orange-led type sort of, you know, the sort of 12th of July kind of event. It was a very sombre, mm. solemn occasion. Um, I think it was right, from my perspective, that a government representative was there because I think, you know, like you only reconcile with people who you disagree with fundamentally by talking to mm. them and, and dealing with In that with light them. then, was it wrong of President Higgins to have kept away? Yeah, in my view it was. Barbara? I don't agree. Um, I, think, I think he was right. Um, he said it wasn't a politically neutral um, event, a statement uh, as an event celebrating the partition of, mm. of this country which led to our civil war. Well, I don't think it said celebrating, I think no, it was commemorating. Commemorating, yeah. excuse me, yeah, you're right. Uh, but I do think that Michael D. Higgins is an extremely thoughtful president and um, I think he understands the power of words and symbolism and all that kind of stuff and I think the Irish people trust him. Um, and I wonder if he had gone 
and had Queen Elizabeth gone, mm. um, it would presumably have been a lot higher profile uh, event than it actually was. It seems to have, like all the talk about it was two weeks ago or mm. whenever it was that Michael D said he wasn't going. Um, and I think the rest of us, we've kind of forgotten about yeah, it. Yeah, I guess it might be true that it might, it had, had they both been there, the two head of states, you might have there seen more been. footage. Uh, yeah. On that note, actually, if people were wondering about the, the legitimacy of Queen Elizabeth not attending news from Buckingham Palace inside the last half hour, is that after she decided not to travel to Northern Ireland, Queen Elizabeth spent last night in hospital. Buckingham Palace says that was as a precautionary measure and that she's been released since, but at least she was uh, unmedically uh, very certainly advised uh, not to attend. But, but uh, Gavin, if the two had gone, right, if, if both the Queen and Michael D gone to that, mm. like, would the sky have fallen in? No, it wouldn't, like. Like, the two heads of state who obviously had respect for state visit, I know it was, it was Mary McAleese when, when yeah. the Queen came here, but she was the head of state in the UK when Michael D attended. Like, I, don't, I just don't see what the fuss was about. And ultimately, government have made the decision that it was appropriate to be there, and they sent two leading representatives of our government to mm. be there, and, you know... Um, Jack Power, you today in the Irish Times had a fairly lengthy expose that you've been working with uh, more than a dozen other journalists to do with international tax. It's not avoidance. Uh, you might even, even explain what exactly the financial activities are and what role Irish banks were actually having in all of that. Yeah, so it's quite a complex kind of financial fraud that basically relates to a, a network of kind of hedge funds, investment banks and, and asset managers. Um, and and the, the long and the short of it was they were uh, claiming multiple... Um, refunds on dividend withholding tax. So that's kind of tax you, you would pay on a, on a share when companies pay out uh, dividends. They, they kind of found a way to structure um, a number of financial trades and transactions so that they'd pay the tax once among the group of them, but they'd be able to get uh, two refunds effectively. So this has kind of since been subject to extensive um, kind of inquiries and investigations by a number of uh, European tax authorities that were effectively defrauded by this and, scheme. And it would be multiple governments around Europe who would have been uh, left out of pocket by this multiple refunds? Yes. Yeah, so we I know think, to what sort of scale? Like, would there be a monetary sum on this? So I think uh, academics have estimated it, um, the, kind of the loss of the cost to tax authorities from this scheme and kind of slightly similar schemes range between 55 billion up to 140 billion. So, and this is over... 140 billion? Yeah, 140 billion. Over over, over 20 years, so the, the scale of it is, is substantial and, and it basically affected the majority of, of Europe, all the large um, European countries. And Ireland's role, I suppose, wasn't targeted, so Ireland's tax authorities weren't defrauded uh, by this scheme, mm. basically because we, we were too small. But Ireland kind of played a key role in basically facilitating the, the scheme to target other tax authorities like Germany and like Austria and Denmark through investment funds that were basically registered in Ireland. And then they were the, the structures kind of used um, by this kind of network of traders and hedge funds. Do those structures still exist to this day? Um, well, the, a lot of the funds that are now subject to the, um, say, German prosecutors' investigations, they've all since you know, been, been dissolved. Um, so I suppose this kind of form of the scheme um, was certainly kind of clamped down on from 2011 onwards um, as a kind of European tax authorities mm. kind of caught on effectively. So we know this particular form seems to have been kind of nipped out. Um, but I suppose the question with this kind of financial ether and, you know, the whole sphere of 
mm. um, trading and kind of markets and, and investment banks is that they will always try and find a way to to find the next thing. Mm. Um, Daniel, it's probably a mark of how quickly the, the news agenda moves these days, that it's less than a full calendar week since the murder of Sir David Amos last week. And there's been a lot of discussion again this week around how politicians can keep themselves safe, not only, of course, in the real world environment, but how much of that is triggered by commentary made online. Yeah, and I, I, I noticed a piece in our own paper this morning from Duncan Smith, the Labour TD, where he talked about the importance of constituency clinics, particularly in an Irish context, you know, I mean, Irish politics much more so than UK politics or even uh, European politics, you know, it, it's based on that intimate connection that politicians have with their constituents. Mm. And if you were to lose that, then a fundamental part of our, our political system would fall. Of course, but in the I mean, Irish case, it's more competitive as well because you're trying to keep off other TDs absolutely. who represent the you same know, area. Absolutely. Obviously, you've seen you know, the, the, kind of the scramble to funerals you know, by mm. multi-TDs. Multi but I would, like, like the murder of, of David Amos on, you know, in the wake of the murder of Joe Cox does raise very fundamental questions around protection of our politicians like I mean they are at risk when they go around and, and they're very high profile high profile people mm. and they're ultimately exposed to like you just don't know who's going to be your next person come walking through the door of a clinic or, or who's going to come through so I mean, there was a commemoration mass this morning um, for David Amos, at which the UK ambassador, Paul Johnson, attended and, and I think spoke very warmly about the, the tributes paid to David Amos. But it, I think it does raise very fundamental questions around democracy, about those who put themselves forward. It is very difficult already to get people to stand f to be a p politician in these countries. Mm. Stories like this and cases like this would, I think, yeah. put an awful lot of people off. interesting to see exactly what it would mean for local elections uh, next time around. Uh, Barbara, before we finish, uh, poor old Madonna, 63 years young, announced still getting grief for using the same filters on Instagram that everyone else is presumably using. What's going on? <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. yeah I'm, listen, I think, you know, if you want to use filters on Instagram or anywhere else, fine. But don't be surprised then when you appear in real life somewhere and people go, oh my goodness, you look quite different from the way you look on your mm. Instagram. Uh, but I do think that this raises a more serious point about older women and about the fact, and women in general, who are we are used to being judged on how we look from the time we are very, very small. And it gets worse when ageism collides with the sexism when you're 60 plus. The meter is about to run out on this filter. You don't want to see me when the red light goes <laughs> off. So I'm going to have to draw a line there. Thanks to Claire Brock and our outside broadcast team in central Dublin. Our programme is available as a podcast and our next news is in Ireland AM tomorrow morning. From all the late team here, Good night, take care, and enjoy the bank holiday weekend. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 